Hi, everyone, and welcome to Dark as Hell. I'm your host, Maggie. I can safely say that for the first time ever on this show, without a shred of the dry humor I might have applied to other institutions and organizations that we've discussed in the past, I was genuinely nervous to release this episode. I'm still somewhat nervous, even right now. When you call to mind the organization known as the Church of Scientology, at least for me, there's an overarching theme of darkness, of fear, of enforced silence, and perhaps most unnerving of all, a theme of retaliation that's often associated when the word Scientology crops up. As is always the case with organizations of this inherently insidious nature, the deeper you go into its depths, the darker its nature becomes. This, I have found in my research, is particularly true for Scientology from my own research. There's going to be a lot of allegedly, from my understanding, reportedly, supposedly, and in my own opinion types of phrases injected into our story today and next week. Because if nothing else, the Church of Scientology loves to attack. In fact, the concept of attack the attacker was a formal organizational policy that founder L. Ron Hubbard codified in 1966. But we'll get to that in a bit. And though we're going to be delving deep into the dark nuances of Scientology, what I want to make clear is that the focus of our story overall should be on Shelley Miscavige, she who was called the First Lady of Scientology. Never bodes well, does it, when we have to refer to someone in the past tense, especially when they're deeply associated with an organization like Scientology. But the thing about it is, we don't know if Shelley Miscavige should be referred to in the past tense. We don't know a lot about what happened to Shelley Miscavige after August 2007. Or maybe more importantly, we don't know what exactly happened to her leading up to August 2007. All we know is that she vanished. You might think that this episode is asking what happened to Shelley Miscavige in terms of her disappearance but you'd be wrong. It's not only about her disappearance because this week and next we're asking, what exactly happened to Shelley Miscavige, the once high priestess of Scientology who seemingly fell from grace and vanished into thin air on her way down? Let's get ready to get dark as hell. There are a lot of famous headline-catching names that are associated with Scientology. Tom Cruise, of course, 
might be first at the top of the list. There's John Travolta, though he's seemingly been relegated to the shadows of the church more and more as the years have passed. There's Leah Remini, the bravely outspoken former Scientologist who has been shedding light in any way that she can on the darkest parts of this so-called church. There's David Miscavige, the ferociously bulldog-like current leader of the church, he who took up the mantle following L. Ron Hubbard's death in 1986. Somewhere down the list of quote-unquote famous Scientologists, you might stumble across Shelley Miscavige's name. Michelle Diane Barnett was born on January 18, 1961, to Mary Florence and Maurice Barnett. Many nicknames were used by the Barnett family. Michelle went by Shelley. Her mother was more regularly called Flo, a callback to her middle name of Florence. And Vanity Fair reported that her father Maurice was actually called Barney. As for Shelley's sisters, they followed the pattern of going by their middle names as well. Older sister Mary went by Clarice, and her younger sister Marie was more commonly referred to by her own middle name of Camille. The fourth Barnett daughter, Matari, died only one day after she was born, though. There aren't too many details known about Shelley's very early childhood or about the overall Barnett family as a whole. Barney was a repairman who allegedly had a hard time finding and keeping a steady job to support his family. Flo, on the other hand, was known to have, quote, emotional problems, as described by Vanity Fair. At some point, Barney and Flo divorced, though it's unclear when. We do know, however, that by 1979, Barney had remarried, and at some point, Flo also remarried and wed a man named James Miller, though she kept the name Barnett. What's also unclear is when, precisely, the Barnett family joined Scientology. But by the early 1970s, Shelley Barnett, all of roughly 12 years old, was a Scientologist, along with, it seems, the rest of her family, living on Apollo, a former transport vessel that housed those of Scientology's most devoted rank. Captained by L. Ron Hubbard himself, the ship was typically anchored in international waters, but they did utilize Clearwater, Florida as their own personal port of sorts, whenever the need arose. Hubbard seemed to enjoy playing the role of swaggering, seafaring man, and he instructed members of the Sea Org to wear uniforms that had a decidedly nautical bent to them, making themselves out to be some sort of high-ranking Scientology Navy, by all appearances, with Hubbard going so far as to christen himself its Commodore. But the Sea Org wasn't for everyone, and certainly not just anyone could become part of the Sea Org. Scientologist texts describe the Sea Org members as being part of a, quote, fraternal religious order, comprising the church's most dedicated members. You'll come to see that the hierarchies intertwined throughout Scientology are at the very heart of its ethos. Like little Russian dolls, one hierarchical system leads into a newer, higher level or more selective sub-organization within. Shelley was said to be, quote, a willowy beauty with strawberry blonde hair as a teenager. 
which may have been what led her to being brought into the fold of one of these special sects within Scientology, within the Sea Org itself. The Commodore's Messengers organization was made up of, quote, teenage girls dressed in hot pants and halter tops. They were at the Commodore's beck and call, fetching him drinks, recording his utterances, relaying his commands to others, drawing his bath, and lighting his cools. This most inner sanctum made up of teenaged girls that served a mid-60s aged Hubbard exclusively, this is what Shelley was invited to be a part of. And it was said that Shelley was as devoted a messenger as they came. Though it's unclear when, precisely, again, the Marnettes joined Scientology, and more specifically the Sea Org, by the time Shelley was 12, she was both part of the Sea Org and the Commodore's Messengers organization. Around the same time that Shelley was establishing herself as an exceptionally devoted Scientologist at, again, all of 12 years old, her parents allegedly felt that their daughters were in such capable care of their fellow Scientologists, including Hubbard, that they left Shelley and older sister Clarice on board the Apollo while they themselves disembarked for good and without them. The details about how, why, or what prompted Barney and Flo to leave the Apollo and at least two of their daughters on board are damn near impossible to find. By all accounts, the parents were still active members of Scientology, so it wasn't some sort of philosophical showdown between parents and daughters. Perhaps this was when Barney and Flo were getting divorced. Maybe Barney found a long-term job on the mainland. Flo's mental health and emotional issues may have needed attending to, even though psychiatric care was out and out looked down upon by Scientology. My personal fear, however, is that, practiced con man that he was, L. Ron Hubbard was able to twist the Barnett's devotion to such a degree that he was able to convince them the best course of action for their family was to separate, to separate parents from daughters and to leave the two eldest girls with him. That said, that's just my personal fear of how these events played out combined with what we know of L. Ron Hubbard's expertise in manipulation. But it's here I feel we need to make a detour into the journey of understanding who exactly Shelley Barnett was before she became Shelley Miscavige. Because to understand the first lady of Scientology, you have to understand Scientology and its principles first. And to do that, we need to talk about L. Ron Hubbard. Something that gets lost in translation in the admittedly already distracting nature of Scientology is that it's been around for quite a while, over 50 years, in fact. And I think that speaks to its insidious nature, that for over half a century, this organization has been able to sink its proverbial claws into swaths of people. And at one point, they claimed millions of people were within their ranks. It was in the 1950s that the concept of Scientology first struck L. Ron Hubbard. But before we get to the birth of Scientology, let's meet the man behind it. 
Lafayette Ronald Hubbard was born in 1911 to Leodora May and Harry Ross Hubbard, and he would be their only child. His father was an officer in the U.S. Navy, but only rejoined actively after some years out of it in 1917, during the midst of World War I. At six years old, Hubbard became a military brat as the family traveled the length and width of both the continental U.S. as well as the world. Throughout his youth, Hubbard lived in Washington, D.C., Washington State, Montana, various ports in China, and spent an extended amount of time in Guam during one of his father's posts. Whether due to this constant relocation or not, Hubbard wasn't the best of students. He attended at least three different high schools and he failed out of Helena High in Montana at the end of his junior year because of his poor grades. He attempted to enroll in the Naval Academy in 1928, but he failed the examination on his first attempt. Lieutenant Hubbard, Elrond's father, had long dreamed of his son joining the Navy and arranged for his son to attend Swavely Preparatory Academy in Manassas, Virginia, in a bid for his son to try his hand at a second go-round of the Academy's entrance exam. However, Alron never even sat the second exam due to a diagnosis of ocular myopia, otherwise known as nearsightedness. The diagnosis barred Hubbard from entering the Academy, but you have to wonder how bad his myopia was when he learned that later in life, Hubbard wrote this little note to himself as part of his later writings known as The Affirmations. Quote, your eyes are getting progressively better. They became bad when you used them as an excuse to escape the Naval Academy. Failed attempts to join the Academy behind him, Hubbard was then transferred to Woodward School for Boys in Washington, D.C. due to his father's connections. In the book Bareface Messiah, The True Story of L. Ron Hubbard, author Russell Miller revealed how Lieutenant Hubbard finessed an arrangement for his son's education. Quote, his father was in constant contact with the registrar at George Washington University to try and find a way of getting his son accepted as an undergraduate. Lieutenant Hubbard was advised that if Ron could earn sufficient credits at a recognized school, Woodward School for Boys, a YMCA, quote, Crammer in Washington, D.C. was mentioned, he would not be required to sit the college entrance exam for the university. Accordingly, Ron was enrolled at Woodward in January 1930. Six months later, in June of 1930, Hubbard graduated. And in September of that same year, he enrolled as a freshman at George Washington University at 19 years old. Despite all of these strings pulled in his favor though, Elron did himself no favors to make the most of this opportunity. Though he enrolled in the School of Engineering and declared that he would be focusing on civil engineering, by the end of his sophomore year, his grades resembled those that got him kicked out of Helena High back in Montana. He was found more often skipping class than attending and writing for literary magazines than studying for engineering exams. In September 1931, he was placed on academic probation. And in the spring semester of 1932, he received a secondary warning, specifically in regards to his poor performances in his math and physics classes. He cornerstones of an engineer's education, one would think. One professor writing up a probational report for Hubbard remarked that he, quote, failed makeup and analytics, 
failed cal calculus flatly, work throughout term was weak, also failed final exam, apparently loafing, polite, talkative, but weak student. Now, you're probably asking yourself, what the hell does L. Ron Hubbard's education have to do with any of this? What it does is sets the stage for the con man Hubbard would become. Because despite all of these clear indicators that Hubbard was no man of science, he would later go on to claim that not only did he graduate from GW with an engineering degree, but that he was one of the country's first nuclear physicists. None of that is true. Hubbard never graduated from GW because he apparently left the university after his disastrous sophomore spring semester. And he certainly wasn't a nuclear physicist, especially not after his academic records show that he quite literally received an F in his molecular and atomic physics course in 1932. At 21 years old with no college degree and seemingly no idea what to do with himself, Hubbard traveled to Puerto Rico in search of gold in the fall of 1932, and then returned to the States in February 1933. By April, he was married to his first wife, Margaret Grubb, who went by Polly. The following year, they welcomed their first child, a son, who was born prematurely and who they named Lafayette Ronald Hubbard Jr. Two years later, their daughter Catherine was born. It was during the 30s that L. Ron found something he was good at, writing, and writing pulp fiction to be specific. He was prolific with his writing, authoring over a thousand books during his lifetime, but he wasn't prolific enough to be at the point of massive financial success. The family was said to often be in quote, dire straits for money, a theme that would follow Hubbard throughout his life. Hubbard, though, kept banging away at his typewriter, spinning yarns for various fiction magazines and creating his own novelettes. In 1938, following what he described as a, quote, near-death experience during a dental procedure, Hubbard wrote a manuscript entitled Excalibur, though he never published it. Hubbard believed that Excalibur would, quote, revolutionize, revolutionize everything, and that it was, quote, somewhat more important and would have a greater impact upon people than the Bible. Though no one bought rights to Excalibur, Hubbard's later literary agent, Forrest J. Ackerman, recalled that Hubbard told him, quote, whoever read it either went insane or committed suicide. And he said that the last time that he'd shown it to a publisher in New York, he walked into the office to find out what the reaction was. The publisher called for the reader. The reader came in with the manuscript, threw it on the table, and threw himself out of the skyscraper window. This, along with the egregious resume padding and consistent financial constraints, this penchant for dramatization and over-exaggeration is yet another theme of a thread that eventually wove its way into the tapestry of L. Ron Hubbard. To make it quite plain, the tapestry displays this that L. Ron Hubbard was, perhaps from the very start of his life, a prolific liar. Throughout the 1940s, Hubbard's life continued to be a convoluted mass of lies, exaggerations, and narcissistic bravado, narcissistic bravado. 
The United States Navy thought so as well. In 1941, he finally joined the Navy as a commissioned officer, rank of Lieutenant Junior Grade. His first assignment was as an intelligence officer in New York, which didn't last long. He was in the process of being transferred out to the Pacific Theater when the Navy called him back to the States. In the report following this decision, the Navy wrote, quote, this officer is not satisfactory for independent duty assignment. He is garrulous and tries to give impressions of his importance. He also seems to think he has unusual ability in most lines. These characteristics indicate that he will require close supervision for satisfactory performance of any intelligence duty. Similar instances would follow Hubbard throughout his few years in the Navy. One after another assignment would end in being assigned elsewhere with reports that began to feel like standard form when it came to Hubbard and his behavior. In the fall of 1942, the Commandant of the Boston Navy Yard wrote to Washington that Hubbard, quote, was not temperamentally fit for independent command. His next assignment was in Portland, Oregon as a submarine chaser, perhaps one of the most well-known anecdotes from his naval career. While there, Hubbard believed that he had discovered enemy Japanese submarines, and he spent 68 hours shooting off into the waters. The Admiral of the Northwestern Frontier, Frack Jank Fletcher, later reported that he believed Hubbard had mistaken either logs or rock formations for the subs. Fletcher stated that, quote, an analysis of all reports convinces me that there was no submarine in the area. Just one month after this fiasco, Hubbard, who is still aboard the same vessel somehow, sailed into Mexican territory and began, quote, conducting gunnery practice off the Coronado Islands, claiming that he believed that they were uninhabited. It was finally now, in the summer of 1943, that after the fucking Mexican government got involved, that was when Hubbard was relieved of all command. The resulting report, quote, rated Hubbard as unsuitable for independent duties and lacking in the essential qualities of judgment, leadership, and cooperation. The report recommended that he be assigned, quote, duty on a large vessel where he can be properly supervised. Wouldn't you know it, though, that after these various incidences and embarrassments concluding in his removal from a command position, Hubbard started to feel ill, almost like a child does when they get themselves into trouble. He began complaining of a variety of maladies that lasted for the next two years in episodes that bounced him across the West Coast. Some of these included ulcers, malaria, back pains, headaches, rheumatism, conjunctivitis, pains in his side, stomach aches, pains in his shoulder, arthritis, and hemorrhoids. Years later, Hubbard claimed that he had been so severely wounded during his service, going so far as to claim that he had been blinded and crippled. The only so-called wounds Hubbard ever suffered from, as according to his 900-page military personnel file, were mild arthritis and conjunctivitis. In October 1945, a Naval Board recommended that Hubbard was, quote, considered physically qualified to perform duty ashore, preferably within the continental United States. 
a polite way of essentially getting Hubbard the fuck off the water. Within months, he was transferred to inactive duty on February 17th, 1946. Following his failed Navy career, Hubbard had a hell of a time figuring out himself. He effectively abandoned his wife and children, involved himself with magic, with a K, and the occult, tried to swindle the Navy into essentially paying for a worldwide cruise for himself and his new girlfriend, Sarah Northrup, who he married bigamously in 1946, since he wouldn't divorce his first wife until 1947. He financially damaged one-time friend Jack Parsons and cemented his reputation as a, quote, obvious victim-prowling swindler, as Alistair Crowley once wrote. Fellow science fiction writer L. Sprague de Camp would write this to writer Isaac Asimov of who Hubbard had revealed himself to be. Quote, The more complete story of Hubbard is that he is now in Florida, living on his yacht with a man-eating tigress named Betty alias Sarah, another of the same kind. He will probably soon thereafter arrive in these parts with Betty Sarah, broke, working the poor wounded veteran racket for all it's worth and looking for another easy mark. Don't say you haven't been warned. Bob, Robert Heinlein, thinks Ron went to pieces morally as a result of the war. I think that's fertilizer that he always was that way. But when he wanted to conciliate or get something from somebody, he could put on a good charm act. What the war did was to wear him down to where he no longer bothers with the act. Hubbard had made it plain who he was and others were beginning to catch on to his various acts. So it's no wonder really that that's when he and second wife Sarah made a run for it clear across the country. In 1948, the couple uprooted their lives in California and relocated to Savannah, Georgia. And it was there, in the sweltering southern heat and shade of weeping willows, that a new word began cropping up in L. Ron Hubbard's vocabulary. Dianetics. If you're at all familiar with the history of Scientology, You'll know that Scientology was born from Hubbard's self-developed, quote, therapy, known as Dianetics. What began as a self-help, woo-woo kind of deal, transformed into the, quote, religion of Scientology, as it is known today. The heart of Dianetics, as Hubbard explained it, was this, quote, the basic principle of Dianetics was that the brain recorded every experience and event in a person's life, even when unconscious. Bad or painful experiences were stored as engrams in a reactive mind. These could be triggered later in life, causing emotional and physical problems. By carrying out a process that Hubbard called auditing, a person could be regressed through his engrams to re-experiencing past experiences. This enabled engrams to be cleared. The subject, who would now be in the state of clear, would have a perfectly functioning mind with an improved IQ and photographic memory. The clear would be cured of physical ailments ranging from poor eyesight to the common cold, which Hubbard asserted were purely psychosomatic. Now, there are a lot of Scientology vocab words there, so let me give a little more context about what some of these words mean. 
An engram, for instance, is defined as being, quote, a detailed mental image or memory of a traumatic event from the past that occurred when an individual was partially or fully unconscious. The reactive mind, which is what harbors and stores engrams, is part of the, quote, human mind that is unconscious and operates on stimulus response. Think of Pavlov's dogs and their reactions, for instance. Hubbard claimed that, quote, the reactive mind is composed of impressions of past events of pain and unconsciousness, and one can only remove these engrams from the reactive mind and begin their journey towards becoming clear by a process called auditing. Auditing is defined by Scientology as, quote, the action of asking a person a question, which he can understand and answer, getting an answer to that question, and acknowledging him or her for that answer. Basically, during an auditing session, an auditor would ask questions of the person seeking auditing about their current life, experiences, memories, et cetera, et cetera, while the person seeking auditing was holding on to the e-meter. The e-meter has been likened to lie detectors over the years as it records changes in the physical state of the person that it's applied to. The e-meter though, that reads electrodermal changes, which are electrical charges observed on the surface of the skin. The e-meter picks up these changes and records them. A change would be seen as a charge, which then alerts the auditor that the subject matter being discussed is a charged incident, something that is traumatic and trapped in the reactive mind. Through continued and pointed questioning about the subject that first instigated that jump on the e-meter, the charged incident is eventually rendered to be an untruth. The charge is eliminated, and the auditee is freed from that particular barrier towards their journey to becoming clear. Becoming clear is the end game of Scientology, in essence. Clear is, quote, reached when a person becomes free of the influence of engrams, unwanted emotions, or painful traumas not readily available to the conscious mind. Achieving the state of clear means a person has overcome the reactive mind and is in complete control of their analytical mind. It allegedly costs $128,000 to become clear, but that is something that we will get to in a bit. But so it was in May 1950 that Hubbard published Dianetics, the Modern Science of Mental Health. And to the shock of probably literally everyone who knew Hubbard, it was an almost immediate commercial success. From a 1950 Newsweek review of Dianetics, quote, by August 1950, Hubbard's book had sold 55,000 copies, was selling at the rate of 4,000 a week, and was being translated into French, German, and Japanese. 500 Dianetic auditing groups had been set up across the United States. Note that I said it was a commercial success because the medical and psychological communities weren't as impressed with Dianetics as the rest of the country was. The American Psychological Association criticized Hubbard's claims as, quote, not supported by empirical evidence. And the Scientific American said that, quote, Hubbard's book contained more promises and less evidence per page than any publication since the invention of printing. But for just as quickly Dianetics rose, it came tumbling down almost as fast. By August 1950, the same month that Newsweek review was released, everything seemed to be going to hell in a handbasket. 
a public seminar of 6,000 attendees featuring a woman that Hubbard claimed to be clear ended disastrously with many followers soon voicing their disillusionment and either abandoning Dianetics altogether or dissolving into fringe communities that teetered more closely into the occult than any sort of self-help affiliation. The bi-coastal headquarter branches of the Hubbard Dianetic Research Foundation were in severe financial straits themselves. On one occasion, it was reported that a foundation staffer saw Hubbard taking a lump sum of $56,000, which is equivalent to $600,000 today, out of the Los Angeles Foundation's proceeds with no explanation for why he was doing so. At the Elizabeth, New Jersey branch of the foundation, the accounting files showed that, quote, a month's income of $90,000 is listed with only $20,000 accounted for. By the end of 1950, both foundations were $200,000 in debt, which is roughly $1,750,000 in today's economy. Personally, things were going belly up for Hubbard as well. He and his second wife, Sarah, were at odds. Hubbard was known for jealous fits of rage, beating Sarah once in her sleep because he assumed the smile on her face meant that she was thinking of another man. By 1951, they each had begun their own affairs. At one point, Hubbard tried to sell out Sarah to the FBI as a Soviet asset. This, of course, during the height of McCarthyism and the hunt for communists throughout the US, though the FBI did not take his claim seriously. In a bid for revenge or possibly regaining control of the relationship, Hubbard kidnapped Sarah and their infant daughter, Alexis, out to San Bernardino, California, where he tried to have Sarah declared legally insane. When this failed, Hubbard released Sarah, but took Alexis with him to Havana, Cuba, where Sarah threatened to leave him. In the documentary Going Clear, letters of Sarah's showed the vicious manipulative cycle Hubbard put her through during this kidnapping in the spring and summer of 1951. Quote, he would call me, told me he had killed her, that he had cut Alexis up into little pieces and dropped them into a river, and it was my fault. Hubbard would then call her back, claiming that he hadn't done so, but then repeated the process incessantly. In June 1951, Sarah finally was able to get one-year-old Alexis back, and she successfully filed for divorce. It was a feat that she almost hadn't thought possible, because as her writings later shared, quote, he had always said he'd rather kill me than let me leave him. After attempting to start another headquarters in Wichita, Kansas, a failed attempt at opening Hubbard College and a new 18-year-old bride by the name of Mary Sue Whip, Dianetics and Hubbard seemed on the edge of complete failure and collapse by 1953. That is until a particular conversation that sparked the dawn of the new Dianetics. According to the Scientific American, Harlan Ellison claimed that he was at the birth of Scientology. Quote, at a meeting in New York City of a sci-fi writers group called the Hydra Club, Hubbard was complaining to L. Sprague de Camp and the others about writing for a penny a word. Lester Del Rey then said half jokingly, what you really ought to do is create a religion because it will be tax free. And at that point, 
everyone in the room started chiming in with ideas for this new religion. So it was then the first Church of Scientology was opened in 1954. Scientology was, in essence, an expansion of Dianetics with a dash of religion thrown in. The new so-called doctrine of the church was this. Scientology teaches that people are immortal spiritual beings who have forgotten their true nature. Scientology's central mythology developed around the original notion of the Thetan. Scientology, the Thetan, is the true human identity, rendering humans as, quote, pure spirit and godlike. A human is an immortal alien spiritual being, termed a Thetan, that is presently trapped on planet Earth in a physical, quote, meat body. That is doctrine. Meat body is doctrine. The Thetan has had innumerable past lives, and it is accepted in Scientology that lives preceding the Thetan's arrival on Earth lived in extraterrestrial cultures. Put in plain English, we have aliens living inside of our physical bodies, and we have hampered them with our so-called meat bodies and traumas. The church claims that they provide methods by which a person can achieve greater spiritual awareness within Scientology. Progression from level to level is often called the bridge to total freedom. Scientologists progress from pre-clear to clear and ultimately operating Thetan. Of course, to get to these levels of freedom, Scientologists undergo spiritual rehabilitation, which is what Hubbard reclassified auditing as. Within the church, auditing was rebranded as, quote, a type of counseling in which practitioners aim to consciously re-experience painful or traumatic events in their past to free themselves of their limiting effects. So it was on December 18th, 1953, that Hubbard took this new doctrine of his and incorporated the Church of Scientology, a concept that he had actually spoken of in May of that year, in these terms within a letter. Quote, it is a problem of practical business, I await your reaction on the religion angle. In my opinion, we couldn't get worse public opinion than we have had or have less customers with what we've got to sell. Hubbard, from the jump, saw creating the Church of Scientology as a means of practical business and that the so-called doctrine of the Thetans was something simply to sell. You should know though that this is where Hubbard thought he was going to strike it rich. Hubbard created the Hubbard Association of Scientologists, which he deemed to be the official organization of Scientology. Any other offshoots were considered to be almost franchises of the overarching religion. According to Ruth Tucker in her book, Another Gospel, Cults, Alternative Religions, and the New Age Movement, quote, each franchise holder was required to pay 10% of income to Hubbard's central organization. They were expected to find new recruits, known as raw meat, but were restricted to providing only basic services. Costlier, higher level auditing was only provided by Hubbard's central organization. Of course, with so many franchises then popping up, real estate also became a crucial part of Scientology's financial portfolio. It's reported that today, over 50 years later, the church owns, quote, approximately 12 million square feet of property with Hollywood at the center, and 26 properties around the world, which are worth over $400 million. 
Hubbard was nothing if not ruthless in that pursuit of the almighty dollar, and it trickled down through the ranks of those employed by the church. There were field staff members, those tasked with going out into their communities and sourcing vulnerable individuals who would be most receptive to the promises of Scientology. Hubbard guided the, M the FSMs in 1955 to behave as such when bringing in raw meat. Quote, take cash in advance, guarantee nothing. Make sure you stress its spiritual slant and value. Steer clear of promising cures and don't rush them into auditing. They'll beg for it soon enough. Actually do this to be of service to man. Try to give it away. You'll find you can't. Don't use this just because it's a pre-clear getter. It's a lot more than that. It will put you in financial condition and get your church going. Above FSMs were field auditors who made a 15% commission off of the FSMs recruiting individuals. The auditors would then, quote, recommend pre-clears into joining higher level groups such as class five or C orgs. Straight from the auditing as a career manual that's produced by the church, this is how they lay out the possibility of making money off of auditing. Quote, here is an example. You send your pre-clear into a nearby org and she buys an academy training package for $8,000. You receive a 15% commission on those services which is payable when she arrives at the org to do them, which is about $1,200. If you were to send 20 pre-clears a year into the org for similar packages, you would have $24,000 in income just from selecting your public to train. Of course, auditors don't just recommend their pre-clears to additional courses. They audit them too. Again, from the auditing as a career manual, here's an example that the church uses to showcase how much money one can make auditing people. Quote, you can make a very good living with as few as three paying pre-clears a week, though you will soon have many more. Just look at the chart below. You audit two pre-clears for the IAS rate of $3,200 for a 12 and a half hour intensive. You, you pay 10% to iHelp, which gives you 90%. That's $5,760 income for one week. You audit three pre-clears for the IAS rate of $3,200 for a 12 and a half hour intensive. You pay 10% to iHelp, which gives you 90%. That's $8,640 income for one week. If this reeks of the similar stench of MLMs, you wouldn't be wrong in assuming so. At the very top of the pyramid was, of course, Hubbard. By 1957, after implementing a sneaky little addendum to church protocols that deemed he was to receive a percentage of the church's total income, Hubbard was being paid about $250,000 a year. In regards to modern inflation, that's roughly $2,275,770. And there were other little financial perks snuck in for Hubbard as well. The church paid for both his car and various personal expenses. His third wife, Mary Sue, made $10,000 renting properties for various franchises of the church. And for some reason, one of his daughters, Kay, received $3,242 in a move that was described as simply, quote, generally designated salary or wages. 
You know who wasn't really buying the convoluted mess that was the church's finances and cries of the fact that they should be tax-exempt since they were a religion? The U.S. government, and more specifically, the IRS. The IRS actually reneged on the 1956 tax-exempt status that the church held for two years, because by 1958, the government realized what a racketeering scam that Hubbard was running. Following that move, the Church of Scientology didn't just decide to play ball with the government, they decided to play dirty. It was at the beginning of the 60s that the paranoia that seems to have become synonymous with both Elon Hubbard and Scientology as a whole began to blossom within the ranks. Hubbard introduced a new methodology called security checking because he was so convinced there were spies infiltrating the ranks of Scientology. During a security check, a Scientologist is holding onto the e-meter, but they're being questioned by an ethics officer. The ethics officer then, quote, probes the thoughts, attitudes, and behavior of an individual member by asking them large numbers of questions. The bulk of the questions deal with criminal or sexual activity or intentions, or things that the interviewee might be ashamed of. There were a number of formats that the questions and security check could follow. For an idea of some generalized questions, a person undergoing a security check might have been asked, are you a pervert? Are you guilty of any major crimes in this lifetime? Have you been sent here knowingly to injure Scientology? Are you or have you ever been a communist? Have you ever had unkind thoughts about L. Ron Hubbard? The questions though could become as bizarre and unhinged as quote, have you ever had anything to do with a baby farm? Have you ever smothered a baby? Have you ever enslaved a population? Have you ever destroyed a culture? Have you ever torn out someone's tongue? At the same time that security checks on the church's own justice system was coming into practice, Hubbard released a number of additional doctrines aimed at both securing the sanctity of Scientology and at silencing the church's critics. It was in 1965 that Hubbard first introduced what he called the fair, crime, fair game law, which translated into, quote, a person who attacked the church would not be protected by the church or granted the rights of Scientologists in good standing. The fair game law didn't just extend to Scientologists though. The homes, property, places, and abodes of persons who have been active in attempting to suppress Scientology or Scientologists are all beyond any protection of Scientology ethics, unless absolved by later ethics or an amnesty. This policy letter extends to suppressive non-Scientology wives and husbands and parents or other family members or hostile groups, or even close friends. Opponents who are, quote, fair game, may be, quote, deprived of property or injured by any means by any Scientologist without any discipline of the Scientologist, may be tricked, sued, or lied to, or destroyed. No one is fair game until she or he declares against us. In 1966, Hubbard wrote a memo about another new policy, quite adjacent to fair game, called Attack the Attacker, which he outlined as such. One, spot who is attacking us. Two, start investigating them promptly for felonies or worse, using own professionals, not outside agencies. Three, double curve our reply by saying we welcome an investigation of them. Four, 
start feeding lured blood, sex, crime, actual evidence on the attackers to the press. Five, don't ever tamely submit to an investigation of us. Make it rough, rough on attackers all the way. You can get reasonable about it and lose. Sure, we break no laws. Sure, we have nothing to hide. But attackers are simply an anti-Scientology propaganda agency so far as we are concerned. They have proven they want no facts and will only lie no matter what they discover. So banish all ideas that any fair hearing is intended and start our attack with their first breath. Never wait. Never talk about us, only them. Use their blood, sex, crime to get headlines. Don't use us. I speak from 15 years of experience in this. There has never yet been an attacker who is not reeking with crime. All we had to do was look for it and murder would come out. And of course, with these new policies came one of the most famous terms associated with Scientology today, suppressive person. Shortened most of the time to SP, the church's official glossary defines an SP as, quote, a person who possesses a distinct set of characteristics and mental attitudes that cause him to suppress their other people in his vicinity. This is the person whose behavior is calculated to be disastrous, also called antisocial personality. The antisocial personality supports only destructive groups. Before someone was actually labeled an SP, they could be labeled a PTS, a potential trouble source. A PTS is often a so-called victim of an SP, with the Scientology glossary defining them as, quote, a person who is in some way connected to and being adversely effective, affected by a suppressive person. Such a person is often called a potential trouble source because he can be a lot of trouble to himself and to others. Should a Scientologist come across a PTS or an SP, they were encouraged to first, quote, handle the individual. According to Hubbard, handling is an action to lessen a situation towards an antagonistic individual by means of communication. Should handling a PTS or SP fail, the Scientologist would then move on to the next step of disengaging from the individual through the process of disconnection. In theory, disconnection is, quote, the severance of all ties between a Scientologist and a friend colleague or family member deemed to be antagonistic towards Scientology. In practice, it is a complete and finite form of shunning an individual. Some former Scientologists have likened disconnection as pretending that the offending person is dead. Parents have been separated from children through disconnection, with children being left in the care of the church rather than with family. Decades-long marriages have been forcibly ended and otherwise generations of familial relationships have ended over disconnection episodes. What Scientology transformed into throughout the 60s was nothing short of an MLM steeped in varying degrees of suspicion, paranoia, and increasingly authoritarian control over its members through perversive fear, shame, and pseudo-psychiatrics. And when you place that environment on board a ship, well, that, my friends, is how the Sea Org was born. Hubbard established the Sea Org in 1967, and it was made up of three ships to form their merry little fleet, the Athena, the Diana, and its flagship, the Apollo. The fleet made its way through the Mediterranean Sea and the Eastern Atlantic, 
stopping in port to port, all while Hubbard was, in effect, on the run. Ken Urquhart, Hubbard's personal assistant at the time, said that Hubbard explained the fleet's constant moving about as such. Quote, we had to keep moving because there were so many people after Hubbard. If they caught up with him, they would cause him so much trouble that he would be unable to continue his work. Scientology would not get into the world and there would be social and economic chaos, if not a nuclear holocaust. Hubbard's goal while on the water was to find, quote, a friendly little country where Scientology would be allowed to prosper. And that just did not ever seem to work out. When anchored near Greece, the Sea Org was represented as Professor Hubbard's philosophy school in a telegram to the Greek government. And yet they were ordered to leave by spring of 1969 when their jig was up. In Morocco, Hubbard became caught up in national internal politics when it was discovered that he had been, quote, establishing contacts with the country's secret police and training senior policemen and intelligence agents in techniques for detecting subversive which led to the fleet's rather hasty departure as it was described in Barefaced Messiah. It was during the first few years of the Sea Org that Hubbard began developing the OT levels of Scientology doctrine. And yes, we are about to get into the alien parts of it all for everyone and anyone who has been so patiently waiting for this portion. The OT levels of doctrine deal with what is known as the story of Xenu. OT3, part of Scientology's secret advanced technology doctrines, was taught only to advanced members who had undergone many hours of auditing and reached the state of clear, followed by operating Thetans levels one and two. I cannot believe I am actually delving into this stupid fucking story, but there is simply some shit that you have to hear to believe. So here we go. Hubbard wrote that Xenu was the ruler of a galactic confederacy 75 million years ago, which consisted of 26 stars and 76 planets, including Earth, which was then known as Tijiak. The planets were overpopulated, containing an average population of 1.78 billion. The galactic confederacy civilization was comparable to our own, with aliens, quote, walking around in clothes which looked very remarkably like the clothes they wear this very minute, and using cars, trains, and boats, looking exactly the same as those, quote, circa 1950-1960 on Earth. Zeno was about to be deposed from power, so he devised a plot to eliminate the excess population from his dominions. With the assistance of psychiatrists, he gathered billions of his citizens under the pretense of income tax inspections, then paralyzed them and froze them in a mixture of alcohol and glycol to capture their souls. The kidnapped populace was loaded onto spacecraft for transport to the site of extermination, the planet of Tijiak, which is Earth. When they reached Tijiak, the paralyzed citizens were offloaded and placed around the bases of volcanoes all across the planet. Hydrogen bombs were then lowered into the volcanoes and detonated simultaneously, killing all but a few aliens. The now disembodied victim souls, which Hubbard called Thetans, were blown into the air by the blast. They were captured by Xenu's forces using an electronic ribbon and sucked into vacuum zones around the world. The hundreds of billions of captured Thetans were taken to a type of cinema, where they were forced to watch a 3D super colossal motion picture for 36 days. 
This implanted what Hubbard termed various misleading data, collectively termed the R6 implant, into the memories of the hapless Thedens, which had to do with, quote, God, the devil, space opera, etc. This included all world religions. Hubbard specifically attributed Roman Catholicism and the image of the crucifixion to the influence of Zenu. The two implant stations cited by Hubbard were said to have been located on Hawaii and Las Palmas in the Canary Islands. When the Thetans left the projection areas, I'm so sorry, I can't keep a straight face. When the Thetans left the projection areas, they started to cluster together in groups of a few thousand, having lost the ability to differentiate between each other. Each cluster of Thetans gathered into one of the few remaining bodies that survived the explosion. These became what are known as body Thetans, which are said to still be clinging to and adversely affecting everyone except Scientologists who have performed the necessary steps to remove them. A government faction known as the Loyal Officers finally overthrew Xenu and his renegades and locked him away in an electronic mountain trap from which he has not escaped. Tijiak was subsequently abandoned by the Galactic Confederacy, and Earth remains a pariah prison planet to this day. And that is the doctrine of Scientology. Hubbard claimed this great personal discovery of Scientology history of his, and he claimed that it came at a massive physical cost, including a broken back, knee, and arm. A letter written to his wife, Mary Sue, at the time, though, painted a different picture of his research process. And I quote, I'm drinking lots of rum and popping pinks and grays. It is decreed by church policy that Scientologists are forbidden from reading the Xenu space opera without taking the prerequisite courses, especially since if one does read the space opera without the proper preparations or authorization, one can contract and die from pneumonia. One is also required to believe in Xenu and the body thetans in order to continue up the bridge of total freedom. It was reported that in 1988, the cost of learning these secrets from the Church of Scientology would run you about $6,500. This is in addition to the cost of the prior courses, which are necessary to be eligible for OT3, which is often well over $100,000. Writing in Skeptic Magazine, Michael Shermer contracted, contrasted such practices with mainstream religion. Quote, Envision converting to Judaism, but having to pay for courses in order to hear the story of Abraham and Isaac, Noah and the Flood, or Moses and the Ten Commandments. Or imagine joining the Catholic Church, but not being told about the crucifixion and the resurrection until you have reached operating theological level three which can only be attained after many years and tens of thousands of dollars in church-run courses. So, Hubbard developed this rum-soaked, drug-induced space opera aboard the Apollo within the Sea Org fleet. But it's the members of the Sea Org that helped bring the story of Xenu and the blind devotion to Scientology to full life. In a 1992 memo sent to the IRS, the Sea Org was described as such, quote, the Sea Org exists as a spiritual commitment that is factually beyond the full understanding of the service or any other but a trained and audited Scientologist. What I take from that is that you have to be some kind of 
full-blown brainwash to be trapped that deeply and intrinsically within Scientology to become part of the Sea Org. When one joins the Sea Org, you first have to sign a billion-year pledge. The church's official website describes this pledge as a way for Sea Org members to, quote, symbolize their eternal commitment to the religion, and it is still signed by all members today. It is a symbolic document which, similar to vows of dedication in other faiths and orders, serves to signify an individual's eternal commitment to the goals, purposes, and principles of the Scientology religion. Individuals who are brought on board, literally and metaphorically, to the Sea Org are said to be part of a conglomerate of Hubbard's ideas and experiences. There are clear parallels between the naval force that it attempts to mirror and Hubbard's disastrous own naval career. It has been posited that the Sea Org members are even supposed to mirror the loyal officers from the Xenu story. Of course, unless you were read into the darker details of Scientology's day-to-day, you might not even realize that the real reason you are floating off the coast of various countries and ports is because Hubbard was trying to outrun the IRS, the FDA, and a number of lawsuits and threats of extradition charges by simply floating along in international waters. But no, Sea Org members are told that their mission is one of an, quote, exploration into both time and space. So silly little things like government investigations and tax evasion aren't something to be concerned with. Some fun things that you can expect when you sign onto the Sea Org. Most members are given room and board and a weekly allowance of about $75. They are required to address all members as sir, regardless of rank or gender. They must run everywhere instead of walking. They agreed to strict codes of discipline, such as disavowing premarital sex, working long hours on average at least 100 hours per week, and living in communal housing called birthings. They are allowed to marry, but they must relinquish their membership if they have or want to raise children. And it's here where we finally meet back up with Michelle Barnett, the girl who would become Shelley Miscavige. Like I said earlier, it's unclear what exactly led Shelley's parents to leave her and at least one of her sisters in the care of the Sea Org in the early 70s. According to Jay Gordon Melton's chapter in the book, New Religious Movements and Religious Liberty in America, quote, couples with children must leave the Sea Org and return to other staff positions within the church until the child is six years old. Thereafter, the children are raised communally and allowed to visit their parents in the Sea Org on weekends. Children of members have themselves joined the Sea Org when they came of age. But none of these instances seem to fit with what we know of the Barnett family or the reasoning for why they left their daughters. But leave their children, so Flo and Barney did. Perhaps that early sense of parental abandonment is what led Shelley to become so dedicated to her role as one of Hubbard's messengers. According to sources utilized in Vanity Fair, Shelley was said to have, quote, worshiped the man, hanging on his every word and following his orders with a precision that belied her young years and girlish appearance. She established herself as a devout follower of Hubbard's, even when she left the ship itself and relocated to the church's headquarters of sort in Clearwater, Florida with the other messenger girls while Hubbard plotted his next move. It was here that Shelley Barnett met David Miscavige. 
Miscavige at the time was head of a new all clear unit that Hubbard had created, staffed with the aides and assistants that he trusted most, those who had served for years within the Sea Org or who were seen as, quote, hardened veterans. Chief among them was young 20-something, wiry and ambitious, David Miscavige. He was popular amongst the messenger girls, primarily because of his closeness to Hubbard and his devotion to Scientology. Miscavige had become head of the CMO by 1979. He was head of the All Clear Unit, and he'd been named in charge of the church's watchdog committee and its publishing house, Author Services, Inc., that managed all of Hubbard's literary works. At just 22 years old, he was as impressive a Scientologist as they came. So why on earth was he bothering with Shelley Barnett, the other CMO girls wanted to know. One messenger recounted to Vanity Fair that the romance between Shelley and Miscavige drew ire from the other messenger girls, who saw Shelley as, quote, too young and status-hungry for their taste, so they often excluded her. The messenger remembered that the purposeful exclusion, quote, really pushed her buttons. It was the one thing that really made her flash emotion in a desperate sort of way. She was clearly a lonely girl who'd been abandoned all of her life. But once David came into her life, that was it. Along with her devotion to Scientology and Hubbard, Shelley became devoted to David as well. The two became known as a sort of it couple within the church. And by 1982, they were married. Also by this time, Hubbard was fully in hiding and constantly on the move throughout the US, determined so he was to outrun the government. With him were two other high-ranking trusted church members, Pat and Annie Broker, who had been messengers right alongside Miscavige and Shelley. With Hubbard on the run, this positioned Miscavige in the ideal spot of staging a coup. Miscavige staged ethics proceedings, utilizing such practices as security checks, attack the attacker policy, and the fair game law to effectively ouster any rival member of high rank to clear the way for Miscavige to ascend to Hubbard's position when the time came. Miscavige even outmaneuvered Mary Sue, Hubbard's wife, and convinced her to resign from her top position with the Guardian's office, which had been under fire during the disastrous Operation Snow White that was meant to purge any incriminating public documents about Hubbard from the public record. One of Hubbard's daughters was even demoted from her own elite rank and became a personal maid for Miscavige. They didn't have to wait long for the moment when Miscavige would no longer be de facto leader, but leader in his full right. Throughout the final years of his life, Hubbard suffered health issue after health issue, culminating in a stroke on January 17, 1986. He managed to live for a week afterwards and then died on January 24, 1986, at 74 years old in, quote, a luxury bluebird motor home on Whispering Winds, a 160-acre ranch near Creston, California. Miscavige saw his moment and he struck. He announced to both Scientologists and the world the news of Hubbard's death at the Hollywood Palladium, claiming that Hubbard had moved on in that his body, quote, had become an impediment to his work and that he had decided to drop his body to continue his research on another planet, having learned how to do it without a body. Rumors swirled that Hubbard had actually named Pat Broker as the next leader of the church. 
but in a fashion that would soon become typical Miscavige, he silenced the rumors and swiftly assumed the role of head of the Church of Scientology with the title Chairman of the Board. And with his new COB nickname, Shelley Miscavige became the COB assistant, a title said to quote, befit the first lady of Scientology. Former high-ranking Scientologist Mike Rinter stated that quote, Shelley was much less subservient because she was in a position that was basically equivalent to Miscavige's. She was not in a junior position and she was always a feisty sort of person. She led a number of projects and had a staff of about a dozen members, though her role as a COB assistant fluctuated as frequently as Miscavige's moods. Quote, according to Claire Headley, the job required her to be whatever the boss wanted her to be at any given moment. Sometimes she was his unofficial counselor, at other times his valet. Such became the nature of their relationship that she'd hover within arm's reach of him. At such an exciting time in their personal and, I guess, professional lives, you would think that Shelley would be celebrating her and her husband's new roles with her family, the family that had first introduced her to Scientology. But that wasn't the case. Because just months before LRH died, so too did Shelley's long-suffering mother in September 1985. And her death occurred under strange circumstances. Months earlier, in March 1985, 52-year-old Flo had undergone surgery for a brain aneurysm that had proved not to be life-threatening. However, the recovery period was rough for her and she sank into a depression, voicing fears that she would never be the same as she had been before the surgery. According to the subsequent police report, quote, approximately two weeks prior, Flo mentioned she felt no hope of getting better. Two days before her death, Camille, one of Shelley's sisters, was said to have, quote, found the decedent covered with blood from her chest to waist. She asked what happened and was told, I had a nosebleed. She also came to the decedent's room unannounced and found the decedent writing something on a piece of paper. She quickly hit the paper and when the daughter asked what it was, she said, it's just a letter to my doctor. On September 9th, 1985, at just before 7.30 p.m., Flo's husband, Jim, was, quote, in the living room of the family residence when he heard a shot coming from the bedroom. He ran into the bedroom and found the decedent on the bed, a rifle still in her hand, with apparent gunshot wounds. There were slash marks on both of her wrists as well. Now, at the time of her death, Flo stood five foot three inches and weighed 114 pounds. The gunshot wounds that she suffered numbered four, one to the right side of her head and three to the chest. The rifle that was found in her hands was a 22 semi-automatic rifle, Ruger 10-22. The length of this Ruger rifle was 37 inches. The suggestion here then is that a woman who stood 63 inches tall, shot herself in the chest three times, and then once in the head with a rifle that was over half of her own height. Dare I say, make it make sense. Whispers quickly began making the rounds about the circumstances of Flo's death. 
There had been rumors that Flo had left the Church of Scientology in favor of attending an OG offshoot, known as the Advanced Ability Center, which had been founded by David Mayo and was considered a, quote, enemy group by Scientology. In an affidavit by Vicki Asneran, a former high-ranking Scientologist involved with a lot of the organization's litigation that she gave in 1994, she stated, quote, Flo Barnett's suicide was a scandal within the inner circles of Scientology. This was not due to the fact that she supposedly committed suicide, but due to the fact that she had become a member of a declared enemy group, David Mayo's Advanced Ability Center. She was receiving auditing and assistance from this group and at the time of her death, possessed a pack of the NED for OTS, which are secret upper level auditing procedures, which were believed to have come from David Mayo's group. Flo Barnett's membership in this group made her a suppressive person as she was actively squirreling and a member of a suppressive group. Hannah Eldringham Whitfield also gave an affidavit of her own, again in 1994, and she was a former auditor who had delivered thousands of hours of auditing to individuals within the church. She, however, left Scientology in 1984. Hannah and Flo shared several phone calls leading up to Flo's death. From her testimony, quote, Flo was very depressed after her daughter, Shelley, Miscavige's wife, came to visit and ended up screaming at Flo. Flo said in several of our phone talks that neither Shelley or Miscavige cared a damn about her, and she was horrified into what monsters Scientology had turned her children. I spoke with Camille, another daughter living with Flo, who said her mother refused to see the doctor because he hadn't helped her and said her condition wasn't serious. Camille said her sister Shelley and brother-in-law Miscavige knew about their mother's condition but refused to see her or have anything to do with her because they said Flo was making herself ill, refusing to see the doctor and was down stat. Several times Flo openly blamed the Church of Scientology for her condition and spoke bitterly about how the church messed her up in auditing, that Scientologists were callous and now that she was out of money having given it all to the church, no one cared about her enough to help not even Shelley or Miscavige. Two days after our last talk, Camille called and said Flo had shot herself. I was devastated. She said, whereas she was grieving over Flo's death, but relieved that her pain was over, Shelley's response was cold and indifferent and relieved the embarrassment was finally over. Camille asked Jerry and me to attend Flo's funeral, which would be small, and limited to family and close friends. The next day, Camille called again and asked us not to attend. She hoped that we weren't hurt by her request, but Miscavige, Shelley, and other CSI top executives had decided to be there after all because they felt it was a duty and to quote, put on a show. According to both Flo and Camille, Flo was an embarrassment to Miscavige and Shelley as one, Shelley visited Flo only once during her lengthy illness, Miscavige never did. Two, Shelly ended her visit to Flo by screaming at her. Three, they never took any action to assist Flo. Four, they considered Flo a PTS due to her connection to, high, to former high-ranking CSI officials, David and Julie Mayo, who the church declared suppressive persons and her antagonism towards the church. Five, they considered Flo a squirrel for receiving auditing from David and Julie Mayo. However, Miscavige was also now a PTS, 
because he was, quote, connected to a person opposed to Scientology and was, quote, intimately connected with persons such as marital or familiar ties of known antagonism to mental or spiritual treatment or Scientology. This, per Hubbard's policy, which meant, therefore, Miscavige could not remain chairman of the board or hold any top command position according to Hubbard's 1972 policy. The only actions Miscavige could take were to get Flo back into the church or to disconnect from her completely. Vicki Asneran reiterated Miscavige's alleged disgust with his mother-in-law saying, quote, the fact that David Miscavige was linked to her by familial ties was extremely repugnant to him and to his wife, Michelle Miscavige. His wife, Shelley, did not appear to feel any different about it than David. I asked Shelley if she was all right since receiving this bad news. She said that personally she was doing just fine and that this was an excellent opportunity to find out where the NED for OT's material had come from and to use it as leverage against Mayo. David Miscavige's comment upon Flo's death was allegedly that, quote, the bitch got what she deserved. Flo Barnett's death, despite the logical improbability in regards to the length of the rifle, the absence of gunshot residue, the fact that one of the gunshot wounds to the chest punctured a lung and broke a rib before she sought shot herself in the head, evidence that suggested that Flo had plans to sue the church and the extraneous factors of her personal life in regards to Scientology. Despite all of that, Flo Barnett's death was ruled a suicide. And all her son-in-law allegedly had to say for it was that the bitch got what she deserved. You have to wonder if that's the same sentiment that he would apply to his own wife. Decades later. It's on that note that I'll leave you with an abbreviated list of hashtag questions for now. Things to ruminate on as we dive further into the darkness of the Church of Scientology and the disappearance of its first lady next week. Hashtag question number one. What led Flo and Barney Barnett to Scientology? When did the Barnett family first join the church? How did they come to be part of the Sea Org, the most dedicated members, if Flo and Barney then later left, two of their daughters on board while they disembarked? Were the Barnett parents encouraged by church leadership to leave the ship and thus two of their own daughters? Why exactly did the Barnetts leave Shelley and her sister Clarice alone with the Sea Org? Did the Barnetts at all keep up with Shelley and her sister when they were on the Sea Org and separated from their parents? Or was Shelley and her sister groomed to be part of the messengers group, groomed to be part of Hubbard's inner sanctum? Through all of his cons and lies and schemes, how was it that Hubbard was able to get away with not just any of this, but how did he effectively get away with all of it? Did Hubbard name the Brokeners as his successors following his death? If so, did David Miscavige simply disregard Hubbard's last orders and fully stage the coup of Scientology leadership for himself? Was part of the reason that Shelley was allegedly so cold towards her mother at the end of her life due to deep-seated resentment at being left by her parents? Or was she fully brainwashed into seeing her mother as a suppressive person? 
At five foot three, how was Flo able to turn a 37 inch rifle on herself and shoot herself in the chest three times? How was she able to shoot herself three times in the chest and then still function enough to shoot herself in the temple? Where was the gunshot residue? Why were there no burn marks or smoke smudges on her hands? What did the alleged suicide notes that she left behind say? What was the evidence that Flo had that she was going to use if she planned to sue the Church of Scientology? Was Flo planning to sue the church? If so, why? Was Flo's association with so-called enemy groups and her alleged status as an SP enough of a reason for the church to want the mother-in-law of its leader dead? Was Flo Barnett murdered in order to protect David Miscavige's standing as the head of the church? Was Flo Barnett's death a high-level instance of permanent disconnection? If Flo Barnett didn't kill herself, then who staged her suicide? Who pulled the trigger? And why exactly was Flo Barnett, Shelley Miscavige's mother, allegedly killed? Claire Headley, a former Scientologist who was once a close friend and colleague to the Miscavige's, shared this concept with Vanity Fair. Quote, the law in Scientology is this, the closer to David Miscavige you get, the harder you're going to fall. It's like the law of gravity practically. It's just a matter of when. We've discussed the rise today, friends. Get ready to discuss the fall next week. Next week, we'll be diving deeper into the role that Shelley played at her husband's right hand, the shift in priorities and punishments that the church underwent with David at its helm, the Tom Cruise of it all, the last sighting of Shelley Miscavige, how exactly the LAPD plays into this, and of course, asking the question, where in the world is Shelley Miscavige? Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you're liking what you're hearing, please go leave a five-star review and rating for the show over on Apple Podcasts. I'll be back here next week with the second half of our hashtag question loaded story about Shelly Miscavige to tell you. I also want to shout out the latest Patreon subscriber, Mandy DeToto. Welcome to the Dog Crew, friend. We are happy to have you here. If you're interested in joining the Dog Patreon crew, you can head on over to patreon.com slash dark as hell podcast to see what level might be up your alley of interest. If you're not sure what level you'd like to start at, well, there's a new Patreon level and it only costs $1. You can support Daw and the work that I do here for just a dollar a month and get yourself shouted out in an episode, as well as have access to exclusive content on the Patreon. While you're waiting for next week's episode to drop, you can find Dark as Hell on Instagram at Dark as Hell Podcast, all one word, and on Twitter at Dark as Hell Pod. Again, all one word. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can email your comments or hashtag questions of your own over to me at darkasthellpodcast at gmail.com, or you can head over to darkasthellpodcast.com. Thanks again for listening. I'll catch you back here next week, ready to get dark as hell all over again. <laughs>